It's June 2023. Summer is in full swing in Oslo. It's also Pride Month, and countless rainbow flags adorn balconies, businesses, and government buildings. This year, they're hard to miss in the city. Being in Norway, one might think this is business as usual for a Nordic nation that prides itself for having some of the most inclusive and protective legislations in the world for LGBTQ people. Except this extraordinary display of support isn't business as usual. Something feels different. Because only a year ago, in the early hours of June 25th, a gunman opened fire at three locations in the center of the Norwegian capital, including at the London pub, a long-standing fixture of the LGBTQ scene in Oslo. Two people were killed that night. Among the many wounded was Espen Alexander Evient. I sat down with Espen to hear his story, one of courage and resilience in the face of unfathomable terror and violence. I am Arno Siad, and you're listening to Prio's Peace in a Pod. All right, so the night of June 25th last year, you were at London Pub, a popular gay bar in Oslo. Could you share with us what happened to you that night? I can try. Um, June 24th had been a really nice day. It was sunny outside and I had been celebrating my friend's birthday uh, together with my partner. And uh, then we... Uh, went uh, on different events afterwards and I was uh, going to a birthday party, he was going to a concert. But later in the evening we wanted to meet up again and he wanted to go to London. So uh, we went there. Um, now we were both a bit unsure as to how our evening was uh, going to go. So, uh, so it, it was like we just go home we're both a bit tired but then as we discussed this quite late in the evening there came on this song uh, the DJ put on a song from a band that we both liked it's called Heads Will Roll by the Yeah Yeah Yes and um, this song is uh, it's quite bizarre because this song is uh, refrain goes uh, off 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 with your head dance 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 till you're dead heads will roll heads will roll heads will roll on the floor and uh, as uh, Karen O the lead singer was singing uh, the first lines of the song uh, I felt like someone was uh, had smashed my head with something uh, hard uh, and I uh, fainted, lost consciousness, uh, woke up on the floor, utterly confused uh, afterwards to the sound of my boyfriend calling my name. And there were also these other guys standing around me uh, asking me all these silly questions. Uh, like, what did you eat today? When are you born? And I was totally confused. I was like, who hit me? 
I thought. Then uh, someone said, Espen, you have been shot. And then I thought, well, why don't we just um, ask, <laughs> answer the questions then? Uh, and I did. So uh, a couple of moments later, I don't know how long, it might have been 10 minutes, might have been more. Uh, there came uh, a policeman on uh, on the scene who were like checking the room. He looked at me and he said strafskud, which means a bullet just grazed my head. And uh, he went on to uh, secure the rest of the room, trying to get an overview of the situation. And um, I went a little bit in and out of consciousness, I've been told, but in the end I was supported down the stairs, was met by ambulance people, and uh, I told them that I had been grazed by a bullet, and they said, well, just go sit down in that alley over there, and we'll see when we can help you. And as I sat down, uh, this paramedic was running towards me and said, yeah, you're going in that car right now. Okay, so I went, put myself on uh, in the car, uh, and uh, then these two guys were in the car, uh, one didn't know the way he was driving, so uh, so the other one had to go look on Google Maps and tell him it's a labyrinth down there, by the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which way to go. And uh, while he was doing that, he was uh, cleaning my wound. And he said to me, are you sure that you've been grazed by a bullet because there's a hole here? Oh. And I said... I don't know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, from there on it was really just going to the hospital, uh, heading into surgery and uh, waking up the next morning. So basically you thought the bullet had just crossed you and perhaps touched you a little bit, but in fact it was in your head? It was. Yeah, and uh, my boyfriend had uh, tried to... Uh, to talk with my family about this and uh, his information was also that I'd been grazed by a bullet so uh, my family also got uh, that bit of information in the morning and uh, and they uh, all got a little bit shocked twice that morning when uh, mm-hmm. they got information how it really was and how close it had been Right. And how much time did you spend at the hospital? I was there for uh, about a week. Yeah. Mm. And of course, as I sit across you, I see you bear the mark of that night, uh, a scar on your forehead. How has the attack affected your life and the lives of those around you? And are you okay today? That's uh, quite a big question. (laughs) (laughs) I ask the big Uh, questions. (laughs) Yes. Well, it's uh, been a frustrating year because um, uh, I haven't been back to work yet. uh, And uh, I am injured, but uh, I'm moving forward steadily and hoping to get back to full action. The sooner, the better. Yeah, so... So that's a frustrating part, and also 
it's uh, it's never easy i guess been uh, injured but uh, but i've also had a lot of love and a lot of support from my friends and my uh, known ones and my loved ones uh, so there's that also uh, but yeah i wouldn't recommend you getting injured in a terrorist attack that's no. quite a complicated situation <laughs> And I mean, you mentioned the the support you received from your loved ones and the people close to you. What sort of support did you receive from the authorities? Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's also a good question. I've uh, I've received help from the authorities in a few different ways. I got this uh, lawyer who, who is a support lawyer. I guess that's the term, and she's uh, really nice and has helped me with a lot of things and and health-wise and uh, it's been quite a laggy experience but I've received help from my issues and I can't complain really uh, but um, but yeah it's been it, I don't think the Norwegian society and the Norwegian healthcare system which is really good uh, is uh, really built for this kind of big scenarios that a terrorist attack is, especially in mental health. So um, me personally and also other people I know has been feeling like there's a lack of capacity um, that should be addressed and there should be some changes made, I, I guess, but I don't have the full overview of the situation. So it's a bit circumstantial to, to answer those questions. But for me personally, it's it's been good, but it's also been uh, a situation where, where I have needed some patience to in order to receive the help I have needed. And in that regard, you are part of a organization called Stöttegruppa Schufemte Juni. And yes. for our non-Norwegian listeners, that means support group June 25th. Can you tell us about that initiative and what you're planning to do this year? Yes, I certainly can. The support group of 25th of June is, um, I was one of the uh, the founders and my idea was that I saw that some people around me didn't get the help they need and I also had a few small and some big questions that I thought needed answering and also I thought that uh, someone needs to try to look after the people who were victims there and the people who have been affected by the incident in other ways and I myself needed to do something because I was so frustrated by being set back in all these different ways so I decided to try the empowerment route try to to organize and uh, make an organization and uh, try to put a focus on the situation that I'd been and try to do something because uh, I think the, your your greatest uh, enemy is apathy, and you you should try to make a difference when you're given a second chance, as I was. Yes, and through your words, I hear a lot of you know basically providing support and 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 managing the situation after it happened. But I'm wondering if you think there is anything that society or the law could have done to prevent this and really to prevent this from happening again? 
Yeah, that's also quite a big issue. Uh, But yeah, there are several things that the society could have done in order to prevent this. Uh, One thing we have talked a lot about recently is there's been a report about how this attack could have been averted, which has some really serious conclusions. But there's also these thoughts that uh, maybe the, uh, the healthcare system could have been better. Maybe the system could have picked up the attacker beforehand. Um, and I guess we'll never know if, uh, if this could have been um, avoided. And you never know if the system could have like prevented it with, uh, with early action uh, and by uh, working on, uh, on trying to prevent people from uh, becoming extremists in the first place in a better way. But uh, I think that uh, that is something to be looked into. The shooting took place the night before the actual Pride March last year. Yes. And in Oslo, it includes not just a march, but also concerts, art exhibits, film screenings, etc. Lots of different events. And last year, the organizers announced that all events would be cancelled as a result of the attack. Some were obviously upset about it, as many felt that if we don't march, they win, they being the attackers. A year on, do you think that was the right decision? That was a really complex situation. And uh, you're presenting the one side of the uh, of the situation very well in, in asking the question. The other side of the situation is that the authorities felt it was dangerous to, to do this and they didn't have the control of the situation. But yes, cancelling those events uh, have been classified as a breach of human rights, actually, because uh, by the human rights you're allowed to make your voice heard and you're allowed to uh, gather together in order to to handle situations like the ones that like the one that that happened and and these are venues of healing as well queer community and queer places of meeting up are places of healing and uh, our community were in desperate need of healing in the days after the terrorist attack and those rights were and, and those places were taken away from us uh, by authorities who didn't know if they would be able to protect us. And that has left some serious marks on uh, the queer community in in Oslo and in Norway. And I don't think it was the right action to order those events cancelled. Uh, and we need to look into uh, what we're going to do the next time if and I hope really uh, hard that there will be no next time. But if there is like threats again, uh, against the community like this, again, we really need to be prepared uh, to have the discussion uh, right now as to what would we do in that situation. Because these venues, these uh, events that were cancelled last year, they are vital to to queer people and to the queer community. Uh, and they are vital to the Norwegian community as a whole also, I think, and they should be protected. 
maybe not at all costs, but that's really uh, with, with really high effort. And this leads me to my last question. And what you just said really goes to the heart of the matter for many people, right? You describe those places as places of healing, which they are. But at the same time, as you said, what happened has left a mark on the community. And quite a few are frankly afraid. I ask around me and some say that they won't go to London pub this year. Or some express concern about the march itself. Is it safe? Am I going to be okay? And what do you say to that? And are you afraid yourself? I made a decision in the hospital that I would not be afraid. And that is quite an ambition to have. Um, but uh, it's uh, an ambition that I'm happy with. Um, and I don't know how to even start answering that question, really, because Pride is a, a rebel movement from the from the start. It's uh, it's standing up and telling people who don't uh, want us to exist that, but we are here, uh, and. Uh, it's about protecting your rights. It's about making your voice being heard. So that's one of the answers to that question. It has never been safe, really. Uh, we've been protected, but there's always been people that really don't want the queer community to exist. And that's a disconcerting thought, but, but these people exist. Uh, and uh, we should be out there now building bridges, talking to people, talking to one another, because uh, in the end, last year, a minority attacked another minority, and that's never a good idea, because we're stronger together. So it's of no use to any minority to attack another one. And I think that's uh, that would be true in almost any situation all over the world. Rights are not like a zero-sum thing. And human worth is also not a zero-sum game. It's the more you got of it, the, <laughs> the better it is for everyone. And, well, the question, am I afraid? Well, I try not to be. But of course, it's uh, going to take some, some effort to put on my clothes, get up that morning and head out in the streets and march for my rights. But I'm going to do that. And I hope that uh, people who are not as affected by this situation as I was will also do that. But for some it will be too early. For some it will, it will feel quite dangerous and that needs to be taken seriously. We, we can't make people come to the parade, but I can plead to the allies of the queer movement, the allies of uh, human rights and the allies of people who don't want to march this year to come and to walk with us. Espen, thank you very much. The night of the attack, police arrested Zanyar Matapur, a Norwegian citizen born in Iran who had lived in Norway for three decades. He's been charged with murder, attempted murder, and terrorism. A few months later, police issued an arrest warrant for a second suspect, Arfan Batty, 
an Islamist extremist who had been in contact with Matapur. At the time of recording, Bati is in police custody in Pakistan with an ongoing case for his extradition to Norway. This was the latest in a series of terrorist attacks that have shaken Norway, traditionally seen and seeing itself as a bastion of peace and stability. In October 2021, a man left five people dead after using a bow and arrow in the town of Konsberg near Oslo. In August 2019, another man had opened fire at a mosque in the town of Barum after killing his adopted stepsister at their home. He was subdued by three worshippers. These horrific acts followed one of Europe's most shocking attacks when, on a summer day in July 2011, Anders Bering Breivik bombed government buildings in Oslo before heading to the small island of Utøya, where a political youth group held its summer camp. A total of 77 people, mostly children and teenagers, lost their lives that day, with hundreds more injured. For Norway, these attacks have led to some serious soul-searching and a reflection on how such shocking acts ultimately impact laws and society as a whole. Christine Bektora Sandvik is trying to do just that. She is a research professor at PRIO and a legal scholar at the University of Oslo. She is part of the Repulse Project, a joint initiative by PRIO and the University of Oslo that looks at the role of legal responses in rebuilding and strengthening societies after extremist attacks. And she's joining me now. Hi, Christine. Obviously, the court case on the attacks in Oslo last year is still ongoing, and Espen said this, the state, Norway, is not built for this kind of scenario. His point was that this was particularly true on mental health and the healthcare system in general. But from a legal standpoint, though, are Norwegian courts equipped to deal with this? And how challenging of a case are we talking about here? Uh, Espen was speaking about the victims and the type of help they're receiving. And, and this is something that we know from the 22nd of July attack as well. A very large number of victims really struggling to get by. With respect to the court system, I would like to say that we're equipped. We had the 22nd of July terrorist tried. We had the Barum Mosque terrorist tried. We've had severe cases of mass violence uh, tried in the last couple of years. Perhaps the challenge and the challenge for public sentiment of justice is that very often the perpetrators are very ill. So if they are ill, they are either not fit to stand trial or they are not fit to serve present time. And for victims and survivors, that's quite difficult to handle. As we saw primarily in, in the 22nd of July case, where the terrorist is still in jail and where there is an ongoing concern about his mental health and whether he should actually be in jail. But also other attacks where, we're, you know, Manshaus is now not in jail. He's in hospital care. Right. And you're a legal scholar who has focused on the issue of terrorism and how such attacks affect the legal system in societies. Some of our listeners will be wondering how legal scholars can contribute to this. I want to ask provocatively, isn't terrorism simply a question of surveillance, secret services and the security apparatus? So before an attack or when something is planned, that is clearly the case. So this is the tragic uh, 
observation with the 25th of June attack is that it could have been avoided as far as the government is concerned. However, our project is, is dealing with the ripple effects of terror. Um, so, so for me, this started in, in, I think, February 2017. I was teaching legal sociology. There was the terrorist from the 22nd of July had sued the government for a violation of his human rights, and the verdict had result had just come out. And I wanted to discuss this with my class and, you know, how he was using the court more or less as a theater scene. And on the first row in my classroom was someone I recognized as a survivor. And I was unprepared. I couldn't say anything. And then I started looking at, at the student body. You know, when we had a number of students who'd survived Utaya, but also actually a number of students who'd survived the, the government quarter bombing. They'd been there as clerks, as junior staff, and then gone to law school. And so we started this cross-faculty research project trying to map out. It's, it's mostly a mapping project. You know, what are the legal ripple effects of this attack? What happened to survivors? Did they get their welfare rights? Were they protected? Uh, what happened in municipalities far away from Oslo? What happened with the government quarters and the big, big reconstruction project? What happened with social movements to either stop demolition of buildings or, most painfully perhaps, at Utaya, that the neighbors wanted to halt the national memorial. So that's kind of the job we have here at this 22nd of July project. And, and overall, it's a question of democracy, right? So then Prime Minister Stoltenberg said, you know, we were going to have more openness and more democracy. And how has law worked out? You know, what happened? Right. So what you're talking about here is, of course, the uh, Anders Bering Breivik and the Utoya attacks and the Oslo bombings of 2011. And you mentioned your project, Ripples. What did you find out so far? Well, this is still ongoing. So, you know, ask me again in, in two years. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, as has been also noted in this conversation with you, the state isn't built for this. And, you know, a state can't really be built for mass casualty attacks. To a certain extent, things have worked out. Funding has been provided, expertise has been provided. We've had, you know, a very long period where being being a victim has meant, you know, the victims had to sort of take part in this public discussion that we were, uh, it was an attack against us all, not a targeted political assassination. That has, has finally given way to more honest narrative about who was attacked and why. And, you know, I think it's the same with the 25th of June attack. It's fairly clear who's attacked here and why. This is an attack against democracy, but it's also an attack against a specific group. But mainly we're documenting what happened. And, and what I personally find quite interesting is how stigmatized it is to use law. So, so as a nation, we were quite proud of this court case we had in 2012. But trying to use law for anything else after the 22nd of July is, is almost like a taboo. Maybe it, it's also because I'm a legal scholar that, you know, we find it natural. We find it much better that you should go to court instead of doing something stupid or using violence. Um, uh, but particularly the litigation around the, the National Memorial has been very painful. Right. I want to pick up on something you just said, mm. right, that how Norwegians were rather proud, for lack of a better term, of how the legal system basically took center stage in the case of Breivik, which was obviously a very emotional moment for the nation as a whole. So what you're saying is that perhaps the legal system of Norway has come out stronger out of this, or perhaps more respected? 
Well, I think it has, you know, stuck to its guns, literally, or that was probably the wrong metaphor to use here. But, you know, the fact that Breivik wanted to destroy democracy. And so the response has been to give him good lawyers, to afford him all due process guarantees, to let him go to court and sue the government for his violation of his human rights. And and as we saw in the latest case where he was trying to get released um, on parole, uh, the prosecutor spent a lot of time reading up the names of everyone who'd been injured and dead. You know, almost like a ritual. So it's also clear that the state can use this for something. And I think we see this as also with the 25th of June attack. You know, the persistence in, in trying to get Arfan Bhatti extradited in, in, in preparing the case, in trying to provide uh, lawyers for everyone who's affected. You know, we're unfortunately, we're building experience here. But things are moving along, I would say, in an acceptable manner. And I think of those terms we've been uh, using today, we've referred to Toya, the pride attacks, the, the Biden Mosque shooting. And, and of course, what we're really talking about here is people like Espen and citizens who, who see their lives wrecked or sometimes even ended by being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Do you find it difficult to work on subjects such as this? And how do you find hope, if any? Oh, but I find hope in Espen. Uh, you know, I find hope, and I've been a, I started out as a human rights activist myself, not an academic. But you know, you just meet people that are incredibly brave, that you know care, that do something with themselves. So you know, the support group for the 25th of June, but also the survivors from the 22nd of July, the mothers, you know, sitting there with them in court as they, you know, th- th- this perpetrator killed their their children in cold blood. And, and, and just that human courage is, is very hopeful. And I think, you know, as an academic, it's an honor to contribute. And we're also trying to do something on the Pride attack. So we've, we're starting this initiative called Pride 25th of June, where Pride stands for protection, identity, democracy, and equality. And let's see what happens. Christine, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode was produced by your host, Arno Siad, and edited by Brage Pedersen. It included music from the Yeah Yeah Years. Yeah.